Welcome to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. Today we hear the second part of Dr. Beakey's sermon on Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Christ's baptism, anointing, and approbation. In the first part of this sermon, Dr. Beakey spoke of Christ's baptism and its significance as marking him out as the one who identified with sinners to be their Savior. Now, secondly, he will speak of Christ's anointing or endowment with the Holy Spirit and the Father's approbation of Christ spoken from heaven. As you listen, may the Spirit give you a clearer view of the glory of the Savior and open your heart to Him. Now, as Jesus steps out of the water, something amazing happens. No sooner as he comes up out of the water, verse 10 says, straightway, that is immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit descending like a dove upon him. You can just picture him. He's coming out of the water. Maybe he was just knee deep in the water. We don't know. How far down he was. Jordan is pretty shallow. And he's stepping out of the water. And suddenly, Mark says, and Mark uses the strongest possible word, the heavens ripped open. The heavens ripped open. He saw the heavens open. And the Spirit descended. In the form of a dove. It's amazing. This is a miracle. Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha parted the river Jordan as a symbol of their power. But Jesus here parts something far greater, the dome of heaven. And the Spirit descends. Now Matthew and Luke use the standard word for open, open the heavens. It's a more moderate word. Now Matthew does introduce it with the word low implying still its miraculous nature. But this is the word that's more graphic. You see, Matthew and Luke use the word like he opened the eyes of the blind. Uh, it's still a wonder. It's still a miracle. But, but Mark uses the word, the same word that's used of the rending of the temple veil from the top to the bottom. It's rent, you see. The rending of the rocks on the occasion of the death of the Lord Jesus. It's a violent, sudden tearing apart. A splitting open of the heavens. And so as soon, as soon as this 30-year-old man from Nazareth emerges from the water, the heavens are split in a manner similar to what Scripture says will happen at the return of the Lord Jesus when the heavens will be rolled back as a scroll. So John tells us, the Gospel of John tells us, chapter 1, 32, 33, that the heavens rent asunder was a public manifestation. John saw it as well as Jesus. Did you notice that when we read that? Verses 32 and 33, John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it bowed upon him. And then John says, the Lord had told him, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy 
Ghost. So this is no small thing. This is a major event as well in Jesus' life. Luke 3.22 tells us the Spirit came in a bodily form. The Greek word soma means body. So there was actually a visible form of a dove that came fluttering out of the rent heavens and made its way down to the place where Jesus was standing. And it abode upon him. It lighted upon him, says John 1. And the Spirit remained upon him. You don't read that the dove flew back. You don't read it was temporary. He was filled with the fullness of the Spirit, poured out upon him without measure. Now, of course, Jesus always had the fullness of the Spirit in his divine nature. But in his human nature, you see, what's happening here is that he, in union with with Christ, union with the Spirit, rather, receives the Spirit in a tangible, visible, special manner as a divine confirmation that this Spirit is a permanent gift for His public ministry. So He receives the fullness of anointing that through Him we may also be anointed to be prophets, priests, and kings unto God. And this anointing was actually prophesied at least three times wasn't it? Psalm 45, 7, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness, oil symbol of the Spirit, above thy fellows. That is more than the prophets. Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. So you see, the prophets and some priests and kings, received anointings in the Old Testament of the Spirit in a limited measure. It was with a horn of oil. There was an end to the oil. But Jesus received in the form of the dove, symbolically, an unlimited, unlimited filling with the Holy Ghost. And so the Holy Ghost takes to himself this visible form of a dove. Now, that's a miracle, of course, but it's not altogether unusual in the Bible before the whole canon is complete. It's a special means of revelation. God can make himself manifest however he will. He made himself manifest in a burning bush. He can make himself manifest as the angel of Jehovah. He can manifest himself as a pillar of fire, as a cloud in the wilderness. So what does this mean? Jesus' anointing with the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. Why why is it so important? Well, first of all, it has cosmic significance. Remember Isaiah saying, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. And here, the Spirit does that upon Jesus. This is a radical fulfilling of this prophecy It will be fulfilled on Pentecost in another even greater dimension in terms of numbers of people saved. But this radical rending of the heavens and the Spirit's descent upon Jesus points to the cosmic significance of this event with implications that go all the way back to creation. Remember Genesis 1-2. The Spirit brooded or hovered over the face of the newly created waters of this cosmos, suggesting the action of a dove. 
That creation, however, was stained with sin and groans for the new creation. So that now when the Spirit descends as a dove upon Christ, such descent signifies, at least at one level, the new creation corresponding to the cosmic overtones in the rending of the heavens. And you find that same theme repeated when Noah wanted to step out on the new creation after the destruction of the flood. He sent out a dove. It was only when the dove came returned that Noah knew the waters were abated and the new creation had dawned. Well, this is the new kingdom inaugurated the new spiritual creation. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the dove descends as a symbol that the new creation has dawned. This has worldwide significance. So will dawn the eternal kingdom of the invisible triumphant church forever in glory. So in the Spirit's descent upon Jesus... We see the cosmic beginnings of the seed of the woman beginning to triumph in the flesh over the seed of the serpent. But secondly, this anointing with the Spirit has special significance for his people. Scholars point out that frequently the rabbis refer to the dove as a symbol of the community of Israel. That community had destroyed itself, rejected its God. But in Christ who is not only the seed of the woman, but the one true Israelite in whom God's elect are embraced. Victory is to be had through the Spirit. And so as one scholar concludes, the descent of the dove, Spirit as a dove, indicates that he's the unique representative of the new Israel created through the Spirit, who represents all those who are of the true Israel throughout the ages. And so in Christ... By his spirit, all his chosen people will gain the victory. And his anointing, therefore, guarantees the Holy Spirit anointing of every single believer. As 1 John 2, 29 declares that you will receive the anointing of the spirit. But thirdly and finally, this anointing is important for Jesus himself. His anointing graciously and powerfully portrays the union he has with the Holy Spirit. It reflects the qualities that he has in common with the Spirit, such as the purity and the gentleness and the peacefulness that the symbol of of the dove implies. But most importantly, it equips him for the work he's to perform on behalf of his people. You see, the Father sends the Spirit, rips open the heavens and sends the Spirit that abides upon Jesus in His human nature and in all its fullness that He might be upheld and strengthened and empowered to perform everything He must do on behalf of you, dear child of God. That's why Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. How does he uphold him? By his spirit. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Bring forth righteousness. Bring forth salvation to the Gentiles. Jesus took those very words and stood in the temple 
shortly after this experience and read them and sat down and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And in the book of Acts twice we're told that he is the one whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit. So you see the connection between baptism and the descent of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying in both of them, I can only save my people by becoming one with them. Not one in their defilement, not one in their guilt of their sin, but one with them in representing them before the bar of eternal justice to live the life they have not lived, to die the death that they should die. And so the Father comes through the Spirit and says, I will fulfill all of my covenant engagements to thee, my son. I will uphold thee, and I will uphold thee by placing my spirit upon thee in copious measures. I will endow thee with my spirit, that thou will be strengthened for every task that will be thine. Strengthened through Gethsemane, strengthened through Gabbatha, strengthened through Golgotha. To the very end. Until thou wilt breathe thy last and voluntarily die as a substitute to accomplish the redemption of the people of God. Thank God, dear believer. Thank God for your anointing by the Holy Spirit is grounded in His anointing. You see, your anointing is fraught with frailty and weakness because you sin it away. You're not the prophet you should be. You don't talk to other people. You don't confess his name the way you should. You're not the priest. You're not living sacrificially as you should many times. You're not the king you ought to be. You know, saying no to sin at all times and having righteousness reign within you. You fall short every time. But thank God you still are anointed. You are a priest. There are times you do speak. There are times you do live sacrificially. There are times you do say no to sin. Without the Holy Spirit, all your religion would be a sham. And the ground of your religion is not in your prophetical, priestly, and kingly ministration, but in His, in His anointing with the Holy Spirit. But that anointing, as it spills over Christ, and even though it spills into sinful you, is still Still, what gives you the empowering grace of God to carry on and to look to Him and to live unto Him through His empowerment. And so as anointed prophets, priests, and kings, you do confess His name. You do live lives of sacrificial actions and intercession for others. You do fight against sin and Satan in this life. But it's out of gratitude. It's not out of merit. He's done all the meriting. And you come to that same Savior, that same Spirit-anointed Savior, for forgiveness of all your sins. You see, if He was not anointed with the Spirit, I wouldn't dare to be a minister of the gospel. You wouldn't dare to be elders. You wouldn't dare to be deacons. Because our strength is not in ourselves. It's in His anointing. Our anointing is grounded in His. And this is the comfort. The dove descends perfectly and fully upon Christ that we may go out and fulfill our offices in His strength. And that's true not only of church offices, that's true in every office. That's true of you as a mother, in the office of mother, you as a father, in the office of father, you in the office of teachers, whatever it may be. We get our strength through the empowering 
anointing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. Also in the office of suffering. How do we get through our suffering? Same way he got through his. Through the power of the anointing Holy Spirit. And finally, verse 11 speaks of a third momentous event in Jesus' life. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's the voice of his own father. The vocal was as real and miraculous as the visual. The father's voice was every bit as much a miracle as the descending of the Spirit in the form of a dove. The voice spoke primarily to Jesus, the one upon whom the Spirit had come. But John says, John one thirty four, that John also heard it, for he bare record that this is the Son of God. And so two things happen here. First, this is the voice of identification. Thou art my beloved son. And then this is the voice of approbation, approval. In whom I am well pleased. Identification and approbation. Why did Jesus need the identification? He knew he was the beloved son. Of course he did. Did he just do it as some commentators say? Did the father just say that as some commentators say? Just to... So the people around would know he's a beloved son. Well, that may have been part of it. But you see, we always are prone to underestimate the magnitude of the sufferings of Jesus in his human nature. He's bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He had so many needs in his human nature when he went to suffer. And we can scarcely imagine, well, we can't imagine, what went through his mind his human mind, his human soul in those sufferings as he stands, the Holy One, in the midst of sinners and agonizes and suffers and pays for their iniquity. Again, again, what strength it must have been for him in his human nature to be able to think back to the moment of his inauguration when the whole triune God was active and on public display. He declared the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, by the Heavenly Father, as the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Trinity stands behind his ministry. What a strength for Jesus. And in his burning zeal for the honor of God, he knows, he knows that every sin of all his people which deserves the wrath and fury of God, will descend upon him. And in the midst of that crushing load of debt, he can look back and say, but Father, Holy Father, when I was inaugurated, you called me my beloved son. Not just my son. Not just the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, but my beloved son. Jesus never forgot that moment. Never forgot that moment. It's a special moment. You know, you have special moments like that in your life, don't you? Especially when things begin. You never forget the moment you witness your child being born. 
You never forget the moment you see your wife walk down the aisle. Jesus never forgets the moment that's baptized. He's strengthened by it. There he stands, dripping wet, on the banks of the Jordan. And the Father opens the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son. I do everything for the love of my Son. And so when he cries out on Calvary, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He doesn't lose. He doesn't lose, even though the sinnership that he's representing is on the foreground. He doesn't lose altogether his sonship. No, no. He knows his mission. He doesn't forget his calling. He even says to the thief on the cross in the midst of his agony, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I'm the beloved son of the Father. He suffered in anticipation of the joy, Hebrews 12 tells us, that was set before him. He remembers the voice. My beloved son, in whom my father is well pleased. Thou art my son. Now, in Greek, the father spoke this in the aorist tense which means that some scholars say it only means I was pleased, pointing back to the eternal counsel of God. But other scholars say, and I think, I think this, is, this is better, that it's a timeless aorist sense in the sense of Jesus because He and God and the Spirit are, 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 are eternal and are above and beyond time. So that really what the Father is saying when He gives approbation to His Son in these moments is that, My Son, You are the delight of My heart. You are My beloved Son. In You I am well pleased. I was well pleased with choosing Thee from eternity past as the only Savior and Lord of sinners. And I am well pleased with Thee now as Thou dost identify with sinners. Well pleased with Thee in the state of humiliation. Well pleased with Thee on the cross of Calvary. Well pleased with thee I will be in the state of exaltation yes I will be well pleased with thee in all thy work of salvation for all the elect to all eternity future I am forever well pleased with thee my son if the father were not well pleased with his son from eternity past to eternity future how could he ever be well pleased with us we sinners And if he could not be well pleased with his son, how could we ever be well pleased with his son? You see, in Christ and by the Spirit, through the word, the Father communes with sinners like us who trust in his son alone for salvation. And he turns to us and says, because of my son, I am well pleased with you as well. I rejoice over you, as the minor prophet said, with singing. What a beautiful thing this approbation is. And what a beautiful thing when we are recipients of God's approbation through the approbation He has over His Son. Because when we're in Him, we're accepted in the Beloved. And God is well pleased with us as if we had never committed any sin, says our catechism. Because Christ has borne them all. Oh, my dear friend, Can you say of Jesus as the Father did that you are well pleased with Him? 
You know, that's the heart of a Christian. Do you want to know if the Father is well pleased with you? Well, you know it by the fruits of your life. And one of the largest fruits of your life is that you can say in all honesty, Lord, I don't love you. I have to say with Peter, I don't love you the way I wish I love you. But this, this I know, this I know, and this thou dost know, Heavenly Father, I am well pleased with the gospel. I am well pleased with the means of the gospel. But I am most well pleased with him who's the essence of the gospel, with thy well-beloved Son. Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Oh, this is vital living theology. You and I placed on the basis of the principle of Christ's representative headship in the arms of the beloved, accepted in the beloved That's why Paul can say dozens of times we're saved because we're in Christ. We're adopted because we're in Christ. We're regenerated because we're in Christ. We're justified because we're in Christ. Outside of Christ, there's no hope, friend. No hope. You can be as religious as you want. There's no hope. In ourselves, in yourself, you can never please God. You've got only sin and frailty, and weakness, and guilt to offer him. But the beauty of the gospel is that God is well pleased in his son, and through that pleasure is well pleased with you, accepted in the beloved. Behold, what manner of love is this, that the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, brothers, sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, the baptized Jesus the Spirit-endowed Jesus, the fatherly-approved Jesus. In Jesus, we have everything we need. In myself, we see nothing but sin, nothing but culpability, nothing but just exposure to the wrath of God. But we see Jesus, the well-beloved of the Father, the holy, the harmless, the undefiled, the baptized one, the one endowed with the Spirit, We gladly, we gladly run to him. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey, a ministry of the Gospel Trumpet. Please consider supporting the broadcast of Doctrine for Life with your financial gifts. For more information on how to donate to this ministry and to download free booklets, or audio files of previous broadcasts, please visit our website at gospeltrumpet.net. That's gospeltrumpet.net. William Ames said, Theology is the doctrine of living to God. May God write the doctrines of the Bible upon your heart so that you may truly live.